Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 124 for November the 20th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and this week's guest is John Shire. Welcome back, John. Thanks, Chet. John and I are in Atlanta, Georgia right now at the Eins Security Symposium, and I've uh, been doing some presentations and stuff down here. And to kind of kick things off, I mean, lots of chatter about CryptoLocker. Um, and I know, you know, Duck and I have covered CryptoLocker here on the podcast previously, but uh, you did a session this morning talking about CryptoLocker, and maybe you could give a little bit of overview of where things stand with CryptoLocker. I mean, it seems to be kind of an evolving threat that's impacting a lot of folks. Yes, it's definitely an evolving threat, but it's also an evolving story. With the folks that I talked to today, it's definitely apparent that uh, people are hearing about this and people are being affected by it. What's interesting is if we look at the, the stories as they develop, we see the, the story of, about the uh, Swansea police who has been um, compromised by CryptoLocker and has uh, elected to pay the two Bitcoin ransom in this case to get their files back. Yeah, I, I was more than a little disappointed by that, considering every policing and law enforcement organization that's bothered to speak publicly about this threat has told people not to pay the ransom, to not fund these criminal organizations, and then to see the police themselves do it is a bit disappointing at, I guess, multiple levels, right? I mean, you've, you're assuming that if they're paying the ransom, that must mean that they don't have backups of critical files and this kind of thing, and that's pretty disappointing. But I guess from the conference here, something that struck me was it seems like there's a pretty big divide about who's getting hit with CryptoLocker and who isn't. Right. So, you know, most of the organizations we're speaking to here are rather large enterprises. Uh, I would say most of them have thousands, if not tens of thousands of computers in their organizations, and they don't seem to really be seeing it. I mean, is there any theories as to what makes someone more likely to be a crypto locker, locker victim than someone else? I think that it's fair to say that a lot of the companies that we are seeing at this particular conference are probably in the Fortune 1000 uh, category of companies. And uh, generally, when you look at the, their ability to respond to security events and, and their general security posture, you find that they've already put in place a lot of the advice that we say for mitigation in terms of email filters and web filters and having things like HIPs turned on and, and just various technologies that go a long way into proactively protecting you against this kind of stuff. Whereas perhaps when we look at where the infections are probably most hurtful is on the consumer side, where people at home are not necessarily, while they may have AV, they may not necessarily have some of the other ancillary benefits that big companies can depend on, blocking things like CryptoLocker and other types of malware. Um, and then if you look at some of the smaller businesses as well, the fact that you know a lot of these people are have stretched budgets, stretched resources, while they may be more focused on making sure that their business services are up and running and, and running as smoothly as possible to bring in the money that they need to, to stay afloat, security might be sometimes be taking a back seat to that. So uh, you know that that I think in and of itself helps create this problem of, of crypto locker spread. Yeah, I agree. And and I don't know if anybody other than me has been to Swansea, Massachusetts, but their police department doesn't look like a multinational corporation. And so to give them a little bit of a break here, I mean, I, I can be judgmental about whether they should have paid the ransom or not, depending on what was at stake on, on the files that were, were encrypted. And I'm sure they've learned a very valuable lesson about backups and other things out of this as well. But they are a small organization and they don't have a lot of resources. And that means it's much more difficult for them to, to, to keep these things out, just like other small businesses in the community. I mean, being the government doesn't automatically make it so that they've got uh, you know unlimited resource to, to deal with these types of problems. So 
more importantly, when we're talking about this particular compromise, if the files in question here were vital evidence files, uh, part of major cases, you know, we can now conclusively say that they were on an asset that was altered by a third party and the chain of evidence is, has been effectively lost. So uh, that in and of itself is, is a big hit to, uh, to both the public and to the department itself. Absolutely. And I guess on another slightly negative note, uh, we uh, this week, Paul Ducklin wrote a nice article in memoriam of Mavis Beatty. Um, for people who are maybe unaware and that aren't as big in the crypto world, um, Mavis was one of the instrumental people in helping break the Enigma codes during World War II. She uh, worked at Bletchley Park, not too far from our offices in the United Kingdom during the war and uh, spotted uh, some anomalies and encoded messages from the Italians that ultimately led to uh, the ability to decrypt secret uh, access messages that were being transmitted via these Enigma machines. Um, Enigma is a pretty impressive cryptographic technology for the time period that it was being used, but like anything else, a combination of misuse uh, and unforeseen circumstances in the design of the device led ultimately to the the allies being able to to decode these messages. And Mavis was a major contributor to that effort. And we would like to uh, honor her by this mention. And of course, if you'd like to know more information, go to Naked Security and uh, type in Mavis to the search bar, and you'll immediately find the great article by Paul Ducklin um, explaining her achievements. While we're in the United Kingdom of news, I guess everything's kind of bad news. We're going to end with a happy note today because this is not a very optimistic chat chat. But, it, it, you know, we're looking at loyalty build here. And loyalty build to people outside uh, the UK and, and Ireland probably doesn't mean much of anything. But this is another lesson to be learned for, I think, everyone in the world. Uh, when it comes to data protection, and Loyalty Build is a company that uh, provides, uh, you know, personal loyalty benefits programs, and you know they they lost 500,000 client records uh, a few weeks ago, and unfortunately, a lot of that included card data. So, I mean, what what do we know about? what was stolen like what kind of risk could this put people at i mean i heard you know 500,000 records but you know can you fill us in a little bit sure yeah more than that though it was also discovered that uh, it wasn't just credit card data that there was also one over 1 million so 1.12 million records uh, that included name address phone number and email that were also stolen so if you look at that in and of itself which has a lot of personally identifiable data then you couple with it that the company lost unencrypted credit card data, so credit card numbers, including the CVV or CSV code, which for those who don't know is the little three-digit code on the back of your card that helps authenticate the card. You know, that is just a massive breach. And the fact that it was unencrypted is absolutely un unexcusable. Yeah. So wait a second. So the CVV, the CSV, as you said, um, you know, I'm no uh, QSA. But it seems to me that the PCI DSS standards that are so hated that um, a lot of the security people attending events like we're at here in Atlanta poo-poo and say, oh, yeah, PCI DSS. If, you, if you're only doing that, if all you're doing is meeting the regulation, you're not even starting to do security. So I'm, I'm rarely without words. So there's, that is not, they're not able to store that data, even if it is encrypted, right? I mean, my understanding is that data is never to be stored uh, by, the, by the card industry. So 
obviously the unencryption immediately puts them in, in non-compliance, but that they kind of took the extra step of being non-compliant. Yeah, that's right. So it, it just, yeah, it boggles the mind, right? With that, that according to this regulation, you're supposed to not keep that kind of data. And, and it boggles the mind as to why that data was in the database to begin with. Um, I think what makes a lot of this stuff uh, worse is is then the the statements that we hear from these companies that just offer platitudes to their customers, such as "Oh, we we value value our customer loyalty and we value our customer security." Well, if you did that in the first place, you would have encrypted your data and not and and stuck to the the guidelines and the, and, the, and the guidance. I don't know why you didn't do that. But John, um, their statement said it was an extremely sophisticated attack. That just means that their security was less sophisticated than the attack itself. Yeah, I, and I guess sophisticated attackers might have noticed this database was designed to be stolen, considering everything was unprotected, making it easier, strangely, to breach their security because you didn't have to deal with the encryption and steal the keys. So I guess what I take away from this, John, though, is that strength of a brand name or the size of an organization and the number of customers they have is not indicative as to how they may treat your data when it comes to protecting it. We learned this from Adobe. We learned this from Zappos. We learned this from LinkedIn. We learn this now from loyalty build and, and many other cases. And, and that's part of the problem here. When, when you talk to, I think, people who aren't in our industry, they, they have a tendency to go, I'm uncomfortable giving my card data to this three-man sporting goods shop to buy something for my brother for Christmas, but I'm comfortable giving it to insert brand name X that everybody knows in the country you live in because, well, I mean, they must do it right, right? I mean, they've got a half a million people's card data. Yeah, it's fair to say that while these guys were the latest, they obviously won't be the last. And when it comes to trusting brands like this, you know, there has to be some level of trust. There's, there has to be some way for us to, to, to do commerce on the internet and, and at retail, retail stores where we can also have the confidence that our credit card data will be safe. And I mean, a lot of this drives the economy forward after all. But uh, if we can't count on some of these big brands to do the security, do the basics right, it really erodes a lot of that trust. And uh, the, 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 the takeaway, or at least the uh, final blow here, is that it, it, they waited over two weeks before they actually notified people of the breach, which occurred back in October, uh, which in and of itself is, is again, a, a big no-no in my books that, you know, if you have a breach, own up to it, figure out what happened, and then take steps to mitigate any future um, any future breaches and really help in as much as is possible earn that customer loyalty and trust back. Lastly, some positive things to say about Redmond uh, and our friends at Microsoft, which is with Windows 8.1's launch, they've officially discontinued the use of the RC4 Stream Cipher and introduced the default to TLS 1.2. Now, that's a lot of acronyms, and we're not going to get into a crypto lesson here. Perhaps in the future, Paul and I will do a techno on this. But the reality is that's good news. As we know about cryptographic things, they get chipped away at and chipped away at and chipped away at over time. We find weaknesses that make them easier and easier to break. And things like RC4 are pretty easy to break in 2013. So it's nice to see them forcibly retire it and move forward toward new things like AES 
GCM, which is one of the latest beast attack resistant um, methods of securing our web traffic. So I was really happy to see that, as well as the introduction of forcing certificate authorities to begin using SHA-2. While we don't see really anyone issuing SHA-2 certificates yet here in 2013, Microsoft's made it clear that their operating systems beginning in 2015 will not accept certificates signed after January 1, 2015, if they're not signed with SHA-2. So that gives us a year and two months to get our CA friends to begin signing their certs using SHA-2. That should be plenty of time for all the major certificate authorities to migrate their certificate signing uh, facilities to the new technology. These two moves are interesting to me because they're only by default in Windows 8.1 right now, and Microsoft's kind of using its power in the in the market to force everybody forward. The issue is, could it help kill Windows 8? I mean, the reaction to Windows 8's been pretty poor. I noticed you mentioned organizations, quote, making the natural step from XP to Windows 7. They make Windows 8 cryptographically incompatible with a lot of things out there and try to push the world forward, but only using the might of Windows 8. Could this backfire? In the entire realm of possibilities, I guess that is one of them. However, I think the probability of that is not likely to happen. And I think it just the fact that Microsoft is taking this step, any step that takes us to, towards a better future is always a good one. And, and as you know, work factors for breaking crypto change and over time, we, we really need to cull that bottom end, that cruft at the bottom, you know, that just is, uh, is making us less secure. And so, the, uh, you know, we, we both applaud Microsoft for, for this move, I think, and uh, I'm, I'm speaking for, for you now. But, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it speaks to a better future for all of us. And I think if, at, at the end of the day, somebody's got to take the lead on a lot of this stuff, right? So if, if a company as big as Microsoft, with, with as big of a footprint as Microsoft, and, you know, in some aspects, are they're, they're, they're thought and industry leaders, they're doing it maybe some others will follow suit and in this case it's not a, just a me too it's an actual uh, a benefit to the world at large if we can get to that better state in the end uh, I think you know you're you're talking about TLS 1.2 being adopted you know now that browsers are all compatible with TLS 1.2 we can move to maybe a state where servers start offering 1.2 as well and then to the point where maybe a little bit down down the road, we start uh, making 1.2 mandatory as a, a means of communication, uh, secure communications over the internet. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm with you on that. But I, you know, it is interesting to see Windows 8 being the vehicle from my perspective to say, oh, you know, Windows 8's having adoption problems. This, this is a pretty brave move, if nothing else, by Microsoft to begin with Windows 8 with this. Uh, but it's good news, and you should look into it if you run web servers with SSL, uh, make sure your vendors are going to be ready to issue you SHA-2 certificates soon. And, uh, you know, it, it, it all the way around, you really can't complain. So that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 124. As always, for the latest security news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And now you can get all of our podcasts over at soundcloud.com slash And until next time, stay secure.